0: This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and health care providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Today's special episode is an excerpt from the Mayo Clinic 14th Annual Women's Health Update held in Scottsdale, Arizona. This annual conference addresses a variety of health issues that are unique to women while highlighting medical conditions that may cause different symptoms in women. Today's selected presentation, Sexual History Taking, Sexual Health Matters, is presented by Dr. Sunila Vigunta of Mayo Clinic. Dr. Vigunta is a physician in the Mayo Clinic Women's Health Center. Let's tune in.
1: So I'm going to start off with a question. Um, how many of you uh, in training, either medical school training or advanced practitioner training, had sexual history taking as part of your curriculum? Hands, please, show of hands. Oh, wonderful. Okay, so I did not have any sexual history uh, training as part of my curriculum when I was training, so that's, that's for all of you now. So um, we provide menopause counsels to uh, women, and we have been providing these counsels for almost 10 years now. <laughs> But two or three years back, we decided to provide sexual health consults too because we felt that we are really not providing comprehensive health care to menopausal women if you're not taking care of their sexual health issues because menopause and sexual health go hand in hand. So we've been practicing sexual health for the last two or three years, and in the next 30 minutes, I want to share what I have learned over the last uh, two to three years with you. So uh, I have no disclosures, and uh, the learning objectives of this talk are Why is it important to ask uh, women about their sexual history routinely? And when do you ask sexual history uh, from these women? Uh, What is the appropriate uh, time and setting for that? And how do we set up a sexual history interview? And what questions do we ask women to get a detailed sexual history from them? And we'll talk about some uh, questionnaires and algorithms. So if you look at the prevalence of sexual activity, Men are more sexually active in any age group than women are. Um, And also, if you look at the health status and sexual activity, you can recognize from this slide that people who are in very good health or excellent health are more sexually active than um, men or women who are not in good health. So that tells us that sexual health and physical health go hand in hand. So the reason why women, uh, women's sexual activity declines with age is, one, um, the distress does not go away with uh, sexual, uh, sexu- the distress actually goes away because the desired discrepancy between the partners goes away because men also start to see a decline in their sexual activity, and as women age, um, they're, because of their longevity, they lose their partners and become sexually inactive. So sexuality is universal and it is lifelong. Actually, we have seen in that slide that people are sexually active into their 80s, but there are several risks associated with sexuality, unwanted pregnancy, sexually transmitted infections. WHO has declared sexuality as a basic human right. and. The sexual problems are quite prevalent. Actually, sexual problems are more prevalent in women uh, than in men, but who gets asked more about their sexual health problems? Men or women? It's men, because you know, we know that there are several treatment options. We feel that, well, men's sexual problems are straightforward, and you cannot watch TV for 10 minutes without seeing a commercial for uh, a men's sexual problem solution. Uh, so you know, we feel more comfortable with that. And when we inquire about sexual health problems in a patient, we destigmatize that for the patient. It validates and it legitimizes their problem. So these are all important reasons to ask for sexual history. So looking at the sexual complaints of men and women and the male and female sexual dysfunction, this is a national health and social life survey that was done in 1994 by Dr. Lauman and his associates. So women have more sexual complaints, almost uh, almost every category, pain, Uh, sex not pleasurable, orgasm issues, or lack of interest in sex, um, women outweigh men. The only area that men have more problems are performance anxiety and climaxing too early. So um, the percentage of uh, men and women with uh, sexual complaints, this is a study done by Dr. Lauman against, published in JAMA in 1999, it's in the age group of uh, uh, 18 to 59, looking at uh, men and women with distressing sexual health problems. So about 43% of women and about 31% of men actually have distressing sexual problems. So that's all of our diabetics or asthmatics or COPD or hypertensive patients, you name it, all of them kind of put together. It's almost every other woman we actually see in our practice. And we all know that sexual problems go, uh, escalate with age. So in another study done by Dr. Margaret Nussbaum and her associates, uh, when they looked at sexual complaints from women, about 98.8%, it's like almost every woman had at least one sexual complaint, or sometimes even more than one sexual complaint. So like I was talking about, sexual problems are more prevalent in the perimenopausal and postmenopausal women. So between 45 to 64, so that's probably the age group that you really want to start asking about sexual health issues. So um, the sexual health issues uh, affect physical health and emotional health. So this is a vicious study that uh, was actually published in 2006 and looks at the effect of HSDD stands for hypoactive sexual desire disorder. It's actually one of the most common and prevalent sexual disorder for women. So when they looked at women with normal desire and women with low desire, women with low desire have a higher prevalence of being bitter, ashamed, insecure, have low self-esteem, and they feel less feminine. They also feel hopeless, inadequate, frustrated, unhappy, and also they feel like they're letting their partner down. There's another person in this uh, mix. So we cannot separate Sexual health, emotional health, and physical health, they're all integrated and they go together. So, sexual health is just not optional. So, several times in our practice, you know, we see patients who come in because, you know, they have significant sexual health distress, and the distress leads to depression. So, they're depressed because they're having sexual health problems. But when they see a provider, they get treated for their depression, they get started on an SSRI, SNRI. What happens to their sexual function? It declines even more because of the side effects of SSRI, and we are wondering why this woman is not getting any better. So unless we ask for that sexual history, we probably will never get to the bottom of that. So it's part of comprehensive health care for women uh, because it affects physical, emotional and social well-being, overall quality of life uh, for women. So there are many chronic illnesses that we can actually diagnose by taking extensive detailed sexual history from women because there are diseases where each sexual domain is affected. Like the most prevalent or common chronic disease like diabetes uh, diabetes, you know, that is associated with autonomic neuropathy. It can be associated with arousal and orgasm issues and ch- other chronic illnesses like thyroid and depression. They are associated with a low desire leading to hypoactive sexual desire disorder. And most vascular diseases in men and women are diagnosed because they initially present with sexual complaints. And genital psoriasis can be diagnosed because a woman presents with sexual pain. And multiple sclerosis presents with multi-domain sexual dysfunction. So in about one-fourth of patients, when we take a sexual history, we can uncover chronic or significant health problems. And also, I see this in my practice. Once I start asking about sexual history from a woman, I feel like I know her better. I know her relationships. I know what happens at home. I know her support structure. And actually, that improves her trust in me, and we have much better communication after that. So highly recommend it. So unaddressed sexual problems, when we do not take a sexual history and those uh, sexual health problems go unaddressed, the younger age, it can lead to unwanted pregnancies, and that can lead to poor pregnancy outcomes, increased STIs in younger people, and poor partner choices, lack of reproductive life planning, and the lack of reproductive life planning can lead to fertility issues down the road. At At an older age or all ages, we actually see that Well, we already talked about how it can affect the emotional health status uh, of an individual. And not only that, like I said, there is a partner involved in this mix. So if the uh, woman's suffering from a low desire, the partner might perceive that as lack of emotional intimacy, or her lack of interest, or loss of love, and that relationship can suffer. There are lots of relationships that break up because of that. Marriages fail, families suffer. And another study showed that women with distressing sexual health problems are non-compliant with medications leading to um, their chronic diseases not being uh, well controlled. So that said, uh, this is a study that's published in Medscape. It looked at how many physicians who have, uh, providers who have participated in your care over the last three years, asked you about sexual health issues. And if you look at that, uh, 75% of women actually said, nobody asked me about sexual health problems. And about 60% of men actually said, nobody asked me about sexual health problems. Well, it tells us that men get asked more about sexual health problems. So uh, the next thing on uh, my list to talk about is when do you ask for sexual history? What is the appropriate time and place? What is the kind of setting that you would do? I usually ask for sexual history as part of the initial visit, just routinely, just like I ask for tobacco, alcohol, uh, recreational drug use, diet, exercise, I do ask about sexual history from these patients. Um, Or as part of the review of systems, I ask for that. Every well-woman exam, I try to ask for sexual history, and teenagers, you know, the Generation Z, actually expect sexual history taking almost at every visit. They expect sexual STI testing almost at every visit, unless, you know, the teen comes in with a fever of 104 and he or she is very sick and then you know we don't want to ask hey how is the sex life that probably would not be appropriate but uh, otherwise you know they actually expect it and they they do not feel awkward if you ask for it. Postpartum period is a high incidence of sexual dysfunction because of uh, pelvic pain, postpartum depression, high prolactin levels so that's the time that you want to intervene and help out uh, that patient. And there are other relevant um, uh, visits that, you know, you're probably all aware of. Uh, But prescriptions, there are certain medications. There's actually a lot of medications which can affect the uh, sexual functioning in a woman. It's a very, very long list, but I just wanted to kind of bring home the point that even regular medications, antihypertensives such as beta blockers, big on the list, um, or even over-the-counter medications such as H2 blockers, H1 blockers that patients are taking can actually affect um, sexual function. Not only that hormones, oral contraceptive pills can actually affect Uh, sexual function. So um, sexual drive in women is central. So anything that can work on the brain and reduce those positive driving neurotransmitters such as norepinephrine, epinephrine, dopamine, these are the good ones. Uh, And serotonin is the bad one because serotonin, higher levels of serotonin signals sexual satiety. That, you know, you had enough, you know, you don't need many more kind of signal, so that actually reduces the desire, but norepinephrine, epinephrine, and dopamine are good. So any medication that reduces the levels of these uh, hormones can cause sexual dysfunction in women. Another big class that we already mentioned uh, is the SSRI class. So 50% of women who take SSRIs can actually experience diminished libido. That's that's the leading cause of hypoactive sexual desire disorder. And reduced or delayed orgasm can happen in almost 2 thirds of the patient. And in many it causes a delayed ejaculation. And a uh, few patients expe- experience <clears throat> excuse me, diminished arousal, and uh, if a few more patients um, experience multi-domain dysfunction, they can experience all of the above. So it is a whole lot more prevalent you know, than what we perceive as uh, sexual side effects of SSRIs. So whenever we prescribe SSRIs, it's a very good idea to follow up on the patient and ask for sexual side effects. But the good thing is not SSRIs are Um, made equal. There are some SSRIs which have a better sexual side effect profile. So my go-to drug has been Velazodone because it's a partial dopamine agonist and a phi ht one agonist. So it actually improves a little bit of the arousal in women. And Bupropion is a good medication, but Many of my patients say that worsens their anxiety, so I don't use that that much. Nifacidone is a good one, the one that has been taken off the market. Cetazone, I don't know whether you all remember that one. Uh, that's also a lower sexual side effect profile. Mirtazapine is the intermediate one, has about 10 to 25 percent sexual side effects, but it has so many anticholinergic side effects, weight gain, dry mouth, drowsiness, so most women do not prefer that. But the ones that we want to stay away from are citalopram, paroxetine, certiline, venlafaxine, vanlopla- fluoxetine, and fluoxamine. More than a quarter of patients uh, taking these medications will experience sexual side effects. So how to set up a sexual uh, history interview? Let's talk about that. So before we talk about that, uh, let's see what the barriers are for patients. You know, what prevents them from bringing this up? Because 90% of patients who have sexual complaints don't really volunteer this information. They don't talk, talk about it. They do not want to talk about it. Why? Because it's an awkward topic to bring up. So they think that, well, I might lose the respect of my provider if I start to complain about sexual health issues. So that's probably one of the important reasons. And some patients perceive, well, I'm menopausal. Maybe menopausal women have these problems, so it is normal, it is not abnormal to uh, feel this way. And a uh, few patients don't want to waste the provider's time. So lack of opportunity, especially if you're working in an academic setting, you walk into the room, a patient's room, uh, with your medical student and resident, and you know, probably a lot of people around you, there's a the lack of opportunity. Or if the patient has other things she wants to discuss with you, uh, she may not have enough time to bring up the sexual health issue topic. And they don't feel optimistic. Many patients feel that, well, I'll bring it up with the provider, we'll talk about it, we'll discuss it, then what? I mean, there's probably nothing there for me, no treatment options. Both providers and patients feel that way. And they're also not certain whether sexual health is part of their health care, whether they should talk to a provider or they should go talk to a friend, colleague, or mom, sister, or somebody like that. And even if they approach uh, a provider, they're not really sure whether they have to go to their PCP, their OBGYN, or their urologist or psychiatrist. So they do not know which specialty to approach. But when they do approach, it's the gynecologist who get the um, um, majority of these patients.
0: The Mayo Clinic 15th Annual Women's Health Update will be held at the Scott Resort and Spa in Scottsdale, Arizona, February 28th through March 2nd of 2019 we invite you to network with your colleagues and Mayo Clinic faculty by registering at ce.mayo.edu. Links to the course can be found in this podcast's description.
1: So what are the provider barriers? You know, we are also uh, like our patients, you know, we Think that this topic is awkward and we don't feel very comfortable bringing this up. We don't want to offend the patient. You know, some of us do not want to appear that we are seductive towards the patient. So we are worried about how the patients might perceive us. You know, that is always there. We are more comfortable with the same sex patients. So somebody who is the same sex or the same age group, we are more comfortable with rather than the much younger ones or the excuse me older ones so you know we all experience that and um, training you know we most of us probably did not have adequate training in med school or throughout these years how to take sexual history from patients so the other barriers are um, you know we also perceive that there are only few treatment options out there for these patients and low on priority. I mean, if your patient walks in, she has heart trouble, diabetes, and COPD, you want to focus on those issues, and you want to push the sexual health to the bottom of the list. And some of us may have certain religious or personal beliefs uh, that might preclude us from getting detailed history. So half of the patients uh, do see a gynecologist uh, for their sexual health problems when they approach a provider. About a third approach their primary care provider. And the rest of the patients either go to a urologist, psychologist, psychiatrist, you know, various different uh, specialties. So most patients, it's a very small percentage of patients who actually call and make an appointment specifically requesting to see a provider for their sexual health concerns. Most of them want to talk about it during a routine physical exam, or they come in for their diabetes or asthma or their back pain. They want to talk about that. So this is the ideal patient setting uh, for a sexual health interview that I find uh, um, very comfortable. So the patient should always be in control. She should be fully clothed um, and sitting comfortably. And there should be no barriers between you and the patient. There should be a postural echo between you and the patient. And there's already rapport established with the patient. So this is not the first thing we're going to ask a patient as soon as we walk into the room. Uh, we, don't make, we need to make sure that the patient is comfortable with us and there's that rapport established. And the provider, good eye contact, relaxed body language. If the patient perceives that we are feeling awkward about this conversation, she will not proceed with that conversation. Active listening and easy to understand language uh, is another requisite. So. Most patients prefer that we bring up the topic, so we need to initiate the conversation with the patient. And destigmatizing, so telling a patient that this is normal. Many menopausal women have this problem, so we can actually help you. Tell me more about it. So destigmatizing is very essential. Cultural awareness, um, I kind of ran into trouble because uh, we routinely ask for a number of sexual partners, and recently I asked a patient, uh, How many uh, sexual partners do you have? And she was offended by that question. And she said, well, in our culture, we only have one sexual partner. And I had to spend the next five minutes explaining that this is just a routine question, nothing to offend the patient. So it's very important that you understand the cultural background of that patient. Confidentiality is also important. So you have to make sure the patient feels confidential confidential, and also can divulge all the information that uh, she probably never spoke to anybody else in her life and avoid assumptions. You know, Many of us um, have certain assumptions. One of the common ones that I see is, or I actually suffer from too, is heteroassumption. So if a patient does not declare her sexuality, uh, we automatically assume that she's uh, heterosexual. So that's a very common assumption, and that's probably not true because uh, gay and lesbianism and bisexuality are on the rise. So it's really important to specifically ask for Sexual behavior and sexual orientation. And if somebody has children, if somebody walks into the exam room uh, with two kids, you know, again, we assume heterosexuality. But LGBTQ patients adopt children, so it's really important uh, not to assume that. And um, marriage does not equal monogamy, um, unfortunately. And uh, sexual identity does not equal um, sexual behavior. So. Uh, A woman might might actually say that, yes, I am lesbian, but she may be in a heterosexual relationship, so it's important to ask uh, that type of relationship. And also assuming um, gender, sexual orientation, uh, just depending upon how they appear, how they sound, or their age. So the uh, frail-looking 80-year-old, 88-year-old grandma may be sexually active, so you may have to ask her about sexual history. So, certain things to avoid are uh, 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 closed-ended questions, um, such as, do you have one sexual partner? Right? When um, the patient is almost forced to say, yes, I have one sexual partner. Or using terms like bad choice, uh, wrong decision, or, oh, you have 15 sexual partners. That means that you sleep around. So making comments such as that, uh, probably not good. I mean, I'm, I know I'm preaching to the choir here. So the sexual health interview pitfalls, uh, this was actually presented by Dr. Parrish at ISHWISH meeting in 2010. So apathy on part of the providers, the lack of motivation to ask about sexual history, to relieve a sexual distress of a patient, apparently is the most common reason. And if we start a discussion, the uh, discussions are vague and limited. So let's say, for example, somebody comes in with back pain, we ask, On a scale from zero to 10, how is your back pain? Does it radiate? What makes it better? What makes it worse? Uh, Have you taken anything for this? Are you having any neurological symptoms associated? Bowel, bladder problems. So the same detail is lacking when patients complain about sexual health issues. So once we get the history, many patients do not get a diagnosis, and uh, there's no follow-up arranged for these patients for their complaints. So this is a study, it's a web-based study, I find it very interesting, uh, by Dr. Berman, which was uh, published in 2006. So these are provider responses when patients complain about sexual health problems. So one of the major um, responses is an awkward silence, um, misinformation sometimes, or imposition of personal values, uh, boredom, shocked, surprised, uh, and sometimes belittling. And I heard this from some of my patients uh, that and they complain this to a provider. Um, so oh, well, just have a glass of wine. Nothing a glass of wine cannot fix, or take a trip to Hawaii or overdue for a vacation. That will make things better. Or what did you expect? I mean, this is what happens with aging. Welcome to 50s, 60s, 70s, or whatever. So um, there are providers who actually try to minimize uh, patient symptoms. So another special population, uh, Generation Z, uh, the teenagers, um, I consider them a special population. So anybody with teenagers at home? Okay, (laughs) you know what I'm talking about. So uh, 20 million new STIs yearly in the United States, so one in four teenagers will have a sexually transmitted infection. United States leads all developed countries in uh, pregnancy unwanted pregnancy rates between ages of 12 and 19. So we have some work to do here. So teen sexual history taking is a little bit different because Generation Z actually have a better sexual body esteem, which is wonderful. And they have a perception of entitlement to desire and pleasure. Um, I don't know whether that's wonderful or not, but, you know, the sense of entitlement, I do see that in a lot of teenagers, Uh, and they actually expect routine sexual history taking and testing, you know, they don't feel awkward, uh, like the millennials or the baby boomers or the Generation X, they are quite completely different. So um, one important thing is to spend a little bit of one-on-one time with the uh, teenager so there is no hovering, smothering uh, from the parents. And uh, if any appropriate, you can disengage the parent and ask for a little bit of private time with them. And, um, you know, uh, the... the, uh, audience and, you know probably know what I'm talking about when my teenager texts me I had to literally Google some of the words and say okay oh this is what he means. I don't want to ask him because I don't want to look uncool so I try to I try to come up with the answer by myself uh, you know most of the times but there is a, a glossary of terms uh, by uh, CDC it's the LGBT terms for healthcare teams. It's very educational I highly recommend that. So most of us, you know, with children, uh, we try to play the parent surrogate role. We try to lecture, life advice, you know, all that. So our role is as a healthcare provider. So that's important. You have to reinforce confidentiality to the teenager when you say that. Well, these results will not go to your, uh, or the discussions that we have here will not go to your caregiver, caretaker, mother, father, you know, whoever. They will feel more comfortable, and they will tell you everything. And lastly, uh, just ask them, do you have any other sexu- any sexual concerns? So lastly, I want to talk about what questions to ask, and we'll talk about a little bit about some of the questionnaires that we actually use in our practice. So um, I'm going to really skip over this because I know you know all the five P's um, of sexual history taking, partners, practices, past history of STIs, protection from STIs, Pregnancy plans, including reproductive life planning, and what I want to focus on is uh, performance and pleasure. So, um, so in practices, I want to touch a little bit on kink. There are um, some patients who do um, uh, practice this, so they deserve quality, unbiased care. Um, so, the, our role as healthcare professionals is to make sure that uh, this is just kink and not abused by the partner and also educate the patient that your sexual preferences can affect your general health, and teach the patient, teach her uh, safe sexual practices. So I'm going to skip over these um, um, STIs, pregnancy, HIV, hepatitis, uh, but these slides are there for you uh, to review. Let's talk a little bit more about performance and pleasure. So uh, when I start my sexual health interview, I start with an open-ended question. Now, many menopausal women have vaginal dryness and pain with intercourse. Are you experiencing anything like that? And then I go into these specific questions regarding their sexual health problem. Um, Before we dwell on these uh, specific questions, it's really important to know the female sexual response cycle uh, this is by Dr. Rosemary Bassan. It's a nonlinear model. So women, uh, like we were talking about, um, you know, the libido or the desire is central in origin. Um, so emotional intimacy is what starts it all. And when there is a sexual stimulus, there is arousal and the desire and the intimacy, and that leads to emotional intimacy again. So it's kind of a cycle that goes on. Um, and the sexual desire disorders in women uh, do not exist by itself. I mean, there is a lot of overlap between each sexual disorder. So one does not exist by itself. So when we talk about um, sexual health in women, you know make sure that we are trying we are addressing all of that, the desire part, the um, arousal part, the orgasm part, or then the pain and lubrication issues that the patient is experiencing. And when you start assessing that specific problem, to ask about the nature of the problem, uh, what phase is affected? Is this just the arousal or the desire? Or is she having lubrication issues? Is she having pain uh, or sexual satisfaction? Is it one or just all of them or some of them? Is it episodic? Does it only happen in Phoenix and does not happen when she goes to Hawaii? Um, Is this lifelong? Has she always been like this? Or, you know, is this just recent and just started recently? Is this gradual in onset? Is it abrupt? It just presented suddenly. Is this generalized or situational? Does it happen with uh, just Peter or does it happen with Peter, Paul, and and Tom? Um, So it's really important to know those details. And the contributing factors, I mean, did something happen in your life recently, any life-altering event, any emotional event, any medical condition, any new medication that has been started recently, and is it really impacting you? So it's a sexual dysfunction if the patient experiences distress. If there is not a sexual dysfunction, if the patient has no distress from it. So unless it's distressful, there's no reason to treat or, um, you know, give her a diagnosis. And many patients do have partner issues, so we need to focus on that as well. Any exacerbating or relieving factors? Any prior treatments? What are the effectiveness? I mean, have you had success with prior treatments? So we already have these skills. We already ask these questions. It's the same line of questioning. Just like you ask chest pain, you ask about vaginal pain. Just like you ask about depression, you ask about low libido. And um, one of the algorithms I really like is the EMR, which says um, evaluate, manage. If you know how to manage, manage the patient, and then reschedule, bring the patient back. If you do not know how to manage, refer the patient. The R stands for referring. So I just want to take a couple more minutes to talk about questionnaires uh, that we use in our practice. The one is a decreased sexual desire screener. This probably saves time for you if you want to use it in your practice. It's just a five-item questionnaire, and it focuses on desire problems and the contributing factors for low desire. So easy to do, easy to assess, so you may want to use that. We are in an academic practice, and we use the... FSFI, which is the Female Sexual Function Index. Um, It's multidimensional, has about 19 items, and it addresses all six domains like desire, arousal, lubrication, orgasm, satisfaction, and pain. And it uh, can be administered to a wide age, uh, age range to almost all women. It's reliable, it's validated, higher the score the better, So a score of uh, 27 to 31 is considered good, and anything below 26.5 suggests female sexual dysfunction. So there are several other questionnaires, and if you are interested, you you can look these up, Uh, but some of them are very detailed. So in summary, sexual history taking only takes a few minutes. Uh, It's less than five minutes on a patient. We need to use a patient-centered approach pertinent exam um, and assessment and plan using evidence-based diagnostic testing and evidence-based treatment options and arrange for follow-up of these patients. So we already have these skills, so we just need to put them into practice. And one, one last tip that I want to leave you with is uh, you know. Oh, have, know the treatments. There are so many new treatments uh, that are coming out, especially for dyspareunia. Dyspareunia is the most common complaint of women. Hypoactive sexual desire disorder is the most common sexual dysfunction in women. So if you know these two things, I mean, you're covered basically. Um, and also have some resources and have some patient handouts that you can give, those, uh, give the patients who are interested. Website information, especially if you're recommending dilators or vibrators or things like that. Know your community sex therapist. Know your community physical, um, physical therapists who actually focus on pelvic floor physical therapy. And also have a collaborative approach with your community sex health specialists. So if you don't want to treat these patients, you can always refer those patients. So thank you for your attention. That's the end of my talk.
0: Mayo Clinic conferences welcome physicians and healthcare providers from across the country and the world. Learn from medical experts and network with colleagues at exciting destinations. Plan your next CME course by visiting ce.mayo.edu. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please subscribe. I'm Darrell Chutka. Stay healthy and see you next week.